Call Steve Witherup. Calling Steve Witherup. Mobile. Hello? Hey, man. Hey. Had a, uh, had a Zeke meltdown oh. in, in between there. What? Uh, <laughs> is it? Oh, I'm sure it was over something um, extremely important and not like, uh, you know, something insignificant, right? I have obviously been with him almost nonstop for 11 weeks, and uh, I'm recording the podcast in here away from him. And he said, you never hang out with me. You never cut the pineapple for me. You net like just into one of those fits. So, yeah, it's, it's a powerful tool that children have (laughs) though. Like when they try to impose the whole guilt thing. Yeah. Cause I'm like, well, I guess I never do hang out with him. I need to (laughs) drop everything right now. Let's go cut pineapple together, bud. (laughs) I'll buy you a thousand pineapples. I bet that's been, that's been probably pretty interesting because of course with, you know, Maggie being born and Chelsea being very occupied with her, you and Zeke probably have really been attached at the hip, huh? We do pretty much everything together. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, yeah, Chelsea, Chelsea and Maggie are doing their thing. I can do very little to help her outside of just help Maggie, that is, other than just, you know, hold her and let her sleep on me every now and again. But Chelsea's got the, uh, she's the food source, so. Are we, are you recording? I am. Uh, I was thinking, what, so what are you going to, like, what do you miss the most? I mean, and you're not allowed to answer church because, you know, whatever. But uh, what do you miss the most right now? Because of quarantine? Yeah. Um, I miss going to eat at restaurants. This is in no particular order. Uh, I miss... Okay, so I miss hugging friends, you know, like having normal physical contact with people that you love. I miss, like, obviously just being able to hang out with folks. Um, but, like, even when I'm out in public, which is not a ton right now, but if it's a gas station or if it's, um, you know, the grocery store or something, you know, if you, well, maybe, maybe this is just a me thing. I miss like shaking people's hands, having like a, uh, somebody pat you on the back as you walk through a door or something. I, I know that sounds really dumb to bring up, but the, it feels like there's something very human that's being lost right now with us being like, you know, being viewed as germ carriers. Right. Well, I mean, I, and I can't repeat it, but I know the research is there as far as like the importance of human touch, you know, and uh, it is odd like how reliant we are even as a way to get us into interactions. So like some people don't know how to start interacting with without a handshake. Yeah. You, you know, so like there's just this weird, awkward moments of here we are. Like, well, we've had people just start talking. Yeah, right. We've had so many people bring us meals and stuff. Um, had somebody bring us uh, diapers yesterday and somebody walks up and, you know, that you love and you're like, all right, well, you're 10 feet away from me. Greetings. You know, like, what do you, there's, it's so strange to not just walk up and hug somebody or shake a hand or whatever. Um, it's very bizarre. It's almost like, especially in a situation like that, it's almost, you probably genuinely feel like there's gratitude that's left unexpressed. A million percent. With, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, so how do I, so you're, 
how do I convey this through my eyes? Like, do I squint more? <laughs> do I, do I look, how do I look the most sincere now when I say thank you, as opposed to just simply hugging or something? It's very odd. I, I don't know what the study is, but I, I did, I have read that like in order, in order for us to be our most healthy, we need like, it's more than 10 and less than 25. I think it's somewhere around like 16 or 17 and it's actual data. So it's not like just made up but that we need like 16 or 17 affectionate touches every day to feel like, I don't know, human or to feel loved or healthy. I don't know. And there's people that are going to probably abandon it altogether, like forever. It's, you know, not worth the risk anymore. I really, I mean, genuinely do wonder what this does to society. Like I, does that go away? Like, does the, you know, some cashier at a grocery store says something funny and you have this little moment and they come out from behind the thing and you hug them? You know, it's like a once in a... Wait, what? Well, I'm telling you, this is, yeah. I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing. That probably happens to me more than once a month. Yeah. I, yeah, that's that's probably a bad example. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a strange world. It is. But the other side of that is, uh, so a friend stopped by. I'm sure we've all kind of had this where there was a friend that you did see, and then they, they did, they're like, you know what? Okay, I think we're okay, and they give you a hug, that type of thing. It, it's so strange to put it this way, but it, it was almost like, that friendship or whatever, I'm, I felt worth the risk. It was almost more meaningful, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, yeah. At some point I'm just, I, I just am going to stop caring. I think uh, it's not yeah. yeah. It's probably six months from now, but you, this can't go on forever. Right. Yeah. What about you? Oh, as far as things I miss. Yeah. Uh, um, can edit this dead space. Oh, I'm keeping it staying in. <laughs> you know, honestly, it, it's it's probably. I mean, it's probably just kind of what we were just talking about. You know, like I know you're obviously more. Uh, you know, I mean, you don't you hug everybody. You know, so you're just more. What would be the word? You know, uh, social affectionate or whatever yeah i don't know uh, but but even so don't was, respect boundaries is that what you're <laughs> that would be it yes yeah i really miss close talking people like i just love <laughs> i want to no. feel i want to feel the breath yeah. every word <laughs> yeah no but my so it's not as as a demonstrative you know, way of engaging with people is, is you, but it's, it is, it's something that is very valuable to me, you know, like, and, and so you do feel like there is a less than connection between almost every person you interact with. Like, so, uh, not that you are close talking, but like I am consciously standing an extra couple steps away from you. Yep. Like, and it just, it feels, and it just, it does, it just feels weird. Like, you know, we, I mean, we, with the way our life is right now and with kids and everything, with the four of them and stuff, we, I mean, we do go out to restaurants and stuff, but, and I do miss that kind of stuff. And I tell you one thing I miss, uh, there's a couple, uh, people that not even all that often, but I get together with, grab breakfast locally before you know sometimes and so even just small stuff like that um just isn't happening so yeah i don't miss 100 people parties or you know <laughs> going to the club or anything i mean that'll find its way back in when <laughs> i just i just <laughs> first of all first of all what would you wear if you went to a club because I can stand with you in front of your closet. I can tell you, there's nothing there that's going to make you fit in. 
And I just imagine I you standing in the middle, like not even to the edges, just right in the middle of everybody doing whatever they're doing. And you, <laughs> you could not look any more out of place. Oh, come on. I, 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 I feel insulted. I, I don't know. I love, uh, I love the Pete Rollins thing that he says about, like, imagine you're in the most packed nightclub in the middle of Las Vegas or New York or something. It's three o'clock in the morning. Music's just blaring, you know, lights going nuts. He said, if everybody, if they cut the music off, turned all the fluorescent lights on the house lights up all the way up and made everybody make 30 seconds of uninterrupted eye contact and silence that everybody would just be 100% breaking down in tears. Like we're so sad underneath all of this. Just slowly taking the Molly pacifier out of their mouth. Wow. Maybe, you, maybe you are involved in club culture. <laughs> <laughs> I that probably is like not even close to being the right way to. It sounds plausible. That. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, no, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. You want to talk about the Book of John? Yeah, yeah. So we're in John fourteen this week. Uh, One through twenty-one is the text. So um, I guess if you just want to, if you want to read it, and then. Um, Maybe at the very beginning, I've got some thoughts that I'd like to kind of think out loud uh, on that first little section, uh, first few verses. But uh, it's a way to get us into the second part of the conversation. So perfect. That, all right. John 14, 1 through 21. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, You'll know my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. In fact, you'll do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I'll do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Is, is John your favorite gospel by a lot? I wouldn't say... Well, short answer is yes, but not a lot, no. I mean, I think the thing that I appreciate the most is that each one does different things. Yeah. And I and so I like what each one does, but I I definitely like what John does because he he's he's mystical. You yeah. know, it's it's um but 
it, but here's the thing about John that I love so much is it nowhere else is it more present that to be mystical is not the opposite of being earthy. If that's the way you want to describe those two things that sometimes get, uh, you know, put up against each other. Like it's, it's, it speaks to creation in the natural world as much as, um, and we'll actually talk about that today a little bit um, as much as anything, but then also in a way that doesn't, take away the you know the divine presence the mystical aspect of of all of this so that's actually a good way to get into this because you know uh this first part like you know we'll we'll do it very briefly i mean you could spend so much time on this but i think uh it'd be kind of a cool way to give a little bit of a background leading up to this john 14 as a way to get us into further conversation but uh this first part where it says you know don't let your hearts be troubled um trust in god and trust also in me there are more there this is the nlt it says there are more than enough rooms in my father's home what are some more traditional ways that that had been written like in my father's house there's many spaces or there's many rooms or mansions and yeah and so it's become, I mean, we've written songs about this. This is basically um, in our minds, the, the idea of Jesus is leaving as a way to, you know, build a, build a house or a mansion for you so that at some point we could go live with him in this otherworldly location. Um, and, you know, not to say, you know, this, what we're about to talk about isn't, a way isn't trying to discredit this idea of otherworldly dwelling places, you know, or anything like that. But this particular verse, I have a little bit of a different thought or angle on that I think is more powerful in the, in the, this present life in the way that we engage in the, in the here and now, um, because, and it starts back in, in the creation account, John relies deeply and, and loves the creation account, the book of Genesis. And, and here, I think, is part of where it's showing up. Because when we go back to the creation of humanity, the story of, of Adam and Eve, and, the, and it speak, part of what that story is doing is addressing humanity's purpose. Like it's not just this, of course, this historical account or remembering, but it's it's speaking more to who we are. What is this purpose of humanity and how do we fit within this God world uh, human relationship? And if you remember. Part of what the first humans commission was, was to cultivate and keep um, and to serve and to guard the the garden that they were they found themselves in now what's interesting about those those word pairings cultivate and keep and and serve and guard is when the old testament uses those words together in every other place it's speaking about the duties of the priests and how they operate in uh in in the temple um and so what we can gather is Part of what that creation story was telling us was showing us that human part of humanity's vocation or commission was priestly in nature. Like there's these ancient texts like the Book of Jubilees that speaks to Adam being understood as a priest, but not just a priest in in like a church or, or a temple in the way we think about it, but in this cosmic temple, this arboreal temple, this garden temple. And so humanity was placed within this sacred space to cultivate and keep and to serve and to guard, to act as priests within this, this space. The space was created and the priests were placed into the sacred space. Now we think of priests now like that word is tricky for us because as we think about it now, we think of like, I don't know, maybe you don't, but like these buttoned up 
performers of religious duties or like, you know, these high church keepers in a sense. Um, not to, I mean, of course, there's that's such a reduced way of speaking to that, you know, but but we can't we can't impose that thought back into the original context when we're speaking of Adam as a priest, because ultimately we have to remember now that when we speak of these priestly duties, they are they are rooted in the garden story. They're rooted back in the idea of humanity's vocation being to cultivate and maintain this sacred space. Basically, the priestly duty was within creation. Humanity was to mediate the divine presence to all things so that all of the natural world would thrive and multiply. Like, so this is a, this is a, the whole thing was, was a temple. And so God cultivated and ordered this whole thing, and then the priest was to come in and be the be the mediators of this divine presence to all of creation in a way that cultivates thriving and and uh, flourishing. And so to think of humanity as a priest is to understand that we are immersed in this divine presence, natural world human relationship. And so don't think of priests again as just someone that would sit and listen to confession or give out communion. Think about it in a much more bigger cosmic sense that that the human is placed within this relationship of God, creation and each other. There's this core relatedness there and we are the mediators of the divine presence into the the sacred spaces. And so what I think then, strangely enough, is that this beginning of John 14, and hopefully we'll get to where it makes sense, is actually reminding us of that that vocation, that 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 initial call to all of humanity as priests. Because what happens in John 13 is very interesting. John 13, if you remember, um, it starts with Jesus knowing that he was about to leave. He says, my hour has come, and he's uh, basically understanding that he is heading toward his departure. And so whatever follows that is in light of that. So Jesus knows, okay, I'm leaving. Jesus being this incarnate being, like this fully incarnate being, this this place where the, this divine presence is finding flesh that is leaving. And so everything that's happening after that is in preparation for what will follow. And so then part of what does follow then is Jesus washes his disciples feet. Now, of course, part of that is just simply this act of, of serving. Yeah. I mean, of course that, that, that is an element that is part of that story and, and it's part of what's being communicated. But I think that there's something else being communicated in that moment um, because it's it's extremely important. If you remember, um, you know, Peter refuses. He says, who are you to wash my feet? And Jesus responds with this powerful statement of basically saying, if you don't let you know, if you don't let me do this, if you don't participate in this, you have no part of me. There's something very central to the in that moment that speaks to the way in which this Jesus human relationship union is happening if you don't if you don't engage in this you don't have part of me and so is that speaking to just simply you should also serve other people you know of course it's part of it but something deeper than that i think is this is so we know from historical writers, especially a guy named Philo, that there is this link between foot washing and access to the presence of God or access to the temple. So it, it foot washing was specific and specifically spoken to in regards to uh, preparation for priestly work or so it was like preparation for 
for mediating God's presence then within the sacred space. It was a way to prepare the priest to perform the mediating tasks. And so part of what Jesus might be doing in that foot washing moment with his followers is, is reminding them and then in turn all of humanity of their priestly call. So he's preparing them to enter into this priestly work of cultivating sacred space and being, being the place where the spirit of God is at work in the world. And so out of that, then we come into this John 14, the beginning when, when he says, I'm going to create, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, what Jesus says there is in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And that's not the first time that Jesus uses that word in this in, in this gospel, because back in John chapter two, Jesus refers to the temple. He, he speaks to the physical temple, but but he calls it my father's house. And that in that moment, it would have been a very strange way to speak to that temple because the, the, the phrase my father's house in the ancient language is not a way to describe a location or, or, a, or a house or a living space or a building as we would think about it when we think of the word house. But every time that phrase is used, my father's house, it's always used to talk about a group of people or a community or a household or, or I guess more specifically, like maybe a familial community. Um, so like my father's house is, is, the, is the people or the community that makes up that, that unit, that familial uh, community. And so when Jesus says here, my father's house has many dwelling places, I don't think he's talking about this, this location, this specific place. It's not that I'm going to go somewhere else and prepare a, a building or a location for you to come and dwell. He's speaking to, I'm preparing a people. I'm preparing a family. I'm preparing a community of priests where this Christ presence will continue to be at work, where this Christ presence will continue to work, where this, this, this spirit of God will continue to dwell because that same word in my father's house, there's many dwelling spaces. You know, he goes on in, in later in 14 and 15 and he uses that word dwell in many other ways, but it's always in terms of relationship. He, you know, he talks about, you know, I dwell in the father and the father in me and the spirit and, and the believer. And so there's this Jesus, God, believer, relationship that's being formed in a way that Jesus describes as dwelling places. And so what happens then? So these people, these followers of, of Jesus are prepared just as the garden was prepared, just as the, the Old Testament temple was prepared, as these sacred spaces for the presence of God to dwell. And we find in then John 20, this infilling of the Holy Spirit, this Jesus, when Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, what I think we're finding there is the fulfillment of what is alluded to here in John 14, that, that, that the continuation of the work of Jesus is in the formation of communities where the Spirit of God dwells in as and is at work. And so the work of, of these priests, these followers of Jesus, is to then become the mediators of that God presence into the world in a way that shows the whole thing as being sacred and being a place where the Spirit of God is and desires to be at work. That's beautiful. I love that reading. I I don't know that I'd ever thought about, uh, or if I had I'd forgotten, about the foot washing being sort of like a priestly ceremonial cleansing to, to go in and do the priestly task. 
I love that. It's like a, I don't, it, it, it's a reminder, like, because it's not a new thing. Right. Because it speaks back to who humanity is at its core. Like, so it's almost like a, a reinitiation of remember, you know, or not initiation, but like, again, just a reminder, like, this is, this is who you are. Like, because even when Jesus gives his disciples, you know, on the whole, the Holy spirit in John 20, that image of breathing, I mean, that's, that's speaking back to, to the, to the, to the breath of God animating, you know, all of creation. humanity. Yeah. And so it's, it's like, it speaks powerfully to what this whole thing is like this is a garden temple that we find ourselves in we are experiencing this whole thing is a garden temple and so how have we i don't want to i don't know how to say it but like how have we failed as priests then within that sense i mean you know we could speak to the destruction of creation. We could go on and on about that, but that's one area where I like we have failed in our priestly vocation when we do destruction to the sacred space that we have been given. I love the idea almost like a, you know, if we are a kingdom of priests or whatever, like we're a, royal priesthood like this is this is the task this is the vocational task or identity that we've been given not as clergy but as priests which is a different thing uh i love the idea of what that means for like what we would call evangelism like it's 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 reminding people of what they already know at the their deepest core level of what's true it's not a propositional thing of trying to like convince someone of something it's it's trying to get people into the, and, you know, certainly say that we could be, of course, have to acknowledge that we could be wrong, but from our vantage point, Jesus is Lord, and these are the implications of that for what that means for the world. Like, this is the world that you're living in. Like, these hunches that you have uh, lead you back into this place, and and I, I don't know if that even makes sense, but the idea of reminder rather than like uh coercion or something. Yeah. Well, I think I, I can't remember if I mentioned this within the last several weeks, but like one of the ways that the Celtic tradition speaks of Jesus is our ultimate memory, because of course it's more than that, but part of who Jesus is to us is the great reminder of who we are were created to be as human beings. Um, do, do you know what, what's the, what's the guy's name that played in uh, silence of the lambs? So Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. Yeah. Kenneth Tanner posted a video of his last night that uh, he was doing some kind of graduation address. It was very strange. He was like in a dining room and, uh, but he had like some kind of powerful thoughts, like, uh, kind of related to spirituality or whatever, and he was talking about uh, the past is over, the future does not yet exist. An hour from now is not a thing. All we have is the present. So he's talking about uh, there's some old Jewish proverb that uh, talks about there's no rain that's like they're in the middle of a drought or something, and there's no sign of rain at all. And so some shaman or something or some you know, rabbi says, uh, start digging ditches now because, you know, the rain's coming or whatever. And so he was saying, we don't know, we don't know what, what the future is going to hold in all of this, but like the whole idea of them di digging ditches, he, he says that faith, it pulls the future into the present. Like it pulls past and future into like this present moment, like through the power of the spirit. And like this, that's what faith is, is to hold past, present, future, all in the, the present moment that is, and that that's where the spirit is, or so, something along those lines, I think is what I was going for. 
So in light of all of this, like, you know, we have this priestly duty. We, we are the, the place where the spirit of God dwells. Like he's breathed his life and his, his spirit into us. And we have this vocation. We have this task that we've been given, that we've been given. What, what are the implications? Like both personally and corporately, like ultimately I want to get to what, what the implications are for neighborhood church, but like maybe more broadly initially, what, what are the implications of this? Like, how does, how does this go away from just, you know, a new idea or something and into our, our actual present reality? How do we pull that into the present, I guess? Yeah. Um, I guess one thing you know, so obviously, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and like, let's just say he is reminding them or preparing them for this, uh, you know, this priestly duty, or to, or just reminding them of of who they are in preparation to being the dwelling place of the the Spirit of God again. Um, he obviously isn't starting this isn't the start of the environmental movement you know what i mean like i don't want to be we, we can't be guilty of um what what's the term when you force something back into to the text you know I not, jesus yeah i'm not trying to do that or even saying that um but but part of what our current reading i think should be is as we are reminded of that, and as we are taken back then to the 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 Genesis accounts, to me there is not clear instruction in regards to that, but there shouldn't have been a need for it when we just simply understand that we are caretakers of the cosmic temple, and so I do think you know without going into all the the details of the you know the the what what each individual should do or how should we live because i i know it's complicated for the because we are deeply immersed in the in the way in which life has been structured but but i think the church when it recognizes or remembers its true priestly duty it changes the way we engage with the environment and it's a shame that the leading voice is not coming from the church when it comes to the way in which we engage with the natural world. Yeah. I I have, I think that's a, uh, I think that's an, an incredibly good point. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, as we're seeing now with, people's reactions to the virus and stuff. Not, not only is the church not leading the way in, you know, being intelligent in the way that we, you know, interact with the world, we're oppositional to it. We're, we're, you know, in general in the last 75 years of the church here in America, oppositional to anything that's scientific or something like that. And so scientists are leading the way and then we're, not only not not joining them in their cause, we're we're oppositional to what they're trying to do. Yeah, because it's not like you know, it's not a it's not a political conversation, and it's not it, it it's a priestly conversation. Like right, one of the things yeah. that strikes me is that like you know, and and holy people are are like this, in, you know, broadly across religious traditions, but like. Richard Rohr is always talking about like something that strikes him as like as being so holy are these people that like give their entire lives to uh, studying armadillos like you know like the migratory pattern like something so 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 obscure but like they give their life to 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 figuring that out because that that's how important armadillos are right. in, in the grand scheme of things or like I saw this PBS thing where scientists were down in 
Antarctica and they were trying to, uh, oh, what were they doing? They were trying to see if there was, if there was water underneath a glacier or something like if it, if it was sitting on top of land or if it was sitting on top of water and they were doing all of these intense experiments and stuff. And the whole thing just struck me as like really spiritual, what they were doing, you know, like it was, it was very dry, you know, data kind of driven stuff, but like they're down in Antarctica, you know, they, they, that's how important this is to them. Our, our world is important enough to send a team of people to Antarctica to see if one glacier is on top of land or on top of water, because it has implications for, you know, global sea levels and all of that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. It's well, part of the priestly task then for Adam, you know, was to, was to name the animals as God brought them to it. And, you know, part of that means an understanding. And so like you, in order to name, you had to understand in that ancient context. And so um, basically Adam needed to explore who or what these Basically, Adam had to explore how each of these fit within the relationship and then was able to describe them based on that. So there needs to be a deep, a deep understanding of how the world works in order for him to name it. Right. And so, like, I'm, you know, I'm not saying he was in Antarctica doing exactly uh, what you just described, but the, what you just des- described is priestly work in a sense, a hundred percent. And what's, and again, what's funny is like the, you know, if the reading of, of the beginning of John 14 there is like, okay, I've got a mansion. So don't worry about now. Jesus has it covered in the future. Like what I'm saying is not, is not in opposition to a, a more deeply experienced future age to come dwelling with God. But what I'm saying is like, but what does this speak to in the present? So like we would read something like John 14 a lot of times and use that as a evangelistic tool to speak of uh, to people about getting ready for the future. Whereas in all actuality, it's speaking more to the, the present priestly duties and looks a lot more like studying and healing Antarctica than I don't want to speak ill of certain forms of current evangelism, but well, you probably know. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, I mean that, that PBS thing, it was, uh, struck me as more holy than, you know, than a lot of, church kinds of things that I've seen. Um, I, I was listening to, uh, Eugene Peterson had a, uh, had a video. He had a, an interview that just got recently published that they had filmed before he died. And they were talking about like pathways to spirituality and like, how do you, um, how do you enter into this life of faith or the, the, you know, the, the life of God or whatever, and he, you know, one of the things that he was saying is just like, like go outside and learn the name of, uh, learn the names of birds. No, that I'm, I'm conflating two different things. This was, this was in a, a book that I was reading of his. Um, and he was talking about, uh, getting pastors to get out of, uh, out of the same kind of dry, whatever, uh, academic, same old places. So he was saying like, the thing that meant more to him than even scripture for several years in a row was uh, was going to art museums and learning the names of every bird that was in his yard and all of that kind of thing. And like how that is not separate from studying scripture or something like that is it. He said it, it helped him. It helped him read scripture better. It helped him pastor a, a group of people better because he was doing those things. And it reminded me of uh, Richard Rohr saying that like the more spiritual you get, the more 
the more secular it'll sound like as it, as it goes and continues or whatever. And I, I was telling you earlier, uh, before we started recording that I'm this week, I read Ronald Rollheiser's book. It's called domestic monastery. It's a short little book. Um, but I'm going to be referencing it a lot. I'm probably going to send out some copies to folks at the church. And the thing that he contends in the book is that like, uh, he cites this, there was this guy, I can't remember what century it was in, but he was, he spent 12 years in the Sahara Desert in a, you know, completely cloistered and in total silence. And after 12 years, he went back home and he was talking to his mother and it struck him after all of those, after all those years of being away and after all of that soul work, kind of like, like, I genuinely have a panic attack thinking about spending one week in a desert by myself. And the thing that struck him was that his mother, uh, his mother was more holy than him. His mother had, uh, had experienced and was dipped into the exact same kind of like thing that he was in out in the desert. And the way that she did it, the pathway for her doing it was, just normal domestic work, like raising children and cooking meals and like giving herself up for something that was outside of herself. And so his thing in the book is just that like, he says that for, for a, from a mother that's staying at home, um, that is up to their ears with trying to keep children alive and outside of their own, you know, everything that they do is, outside of their own needs. Like they are, their lives are being given for others. He says, it's ridiculous for them to try to find an hour and a half a day to sit in silence and, uh, and to read the Bible and try to have this kind of devotional life or whatever, because he says that all of those things are in service of your own spiritual growth. Like they're in service of when you're reading the Bible, when you're doing this, is to try to like decenter your own ego, and to try to grow into the person who who God's trying to mold you into. And so he says, for an investment banker that spends eighty hours a week working, and you know all of that, they do need to find an hour a day to decenter their ego and to get into themselves. He said the 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 mother that's that's doing all of that. They're they're already dipped into that. Not like they shouldn't be reading the Bible. You do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like it, it it's in service of something else. For sure. Well, and it, it speaks to not to keep using this same phrase, but it it speaks to what is being alluded to here, just with of the whole idea of this cosmic temple, like. Everything, the details given to the priests concerning the way in which they operated basically didn't leave a whole lot out. It spoke to everything and like to the details. And you know, when we read that kind of stuff, a lot of times it's like it may be, especially as a pastor, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm glad I don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. But part of in my mind what that speaks to is when we understand temple is cosmic is it's all part of it. it. It all matters. And so like there is no engagement that is not, that does not have the potential to be a sacred engagement because it all speaks to the way in which the presence of God is being mediated into the world. And is it done in a way that, brings worship or or you know or or not in a sense and it's because we associate worship with with you know with the temple and so how do you worship cosmically by by performing these sort of priestly things and ultimately it it's all one thing so and it's not in competition with one another. It's in like a chorus or in a, you always talk about the idea of like a symphony or whatever. And so you, uh, you know, like we saw your farm a few weeks ago, 
what you do to continue to raise your animals ethically and in, in ways that are, uh, you know, good for them and good for the earth. It's not different than what we do on a Sunday morning to, to corporately worship. Like, yes, it's different, but it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of a bigger, grander priestly task. So, uh, raising children and like Chelsea, you know, we talked about it earlier, like sustaining another human life with her body. Like all of that is holy. All of that is sacred. And all of that is part of what it means to like embody the priestly task or whatever. Everything's holy or nothing's holy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think the whole conversation that we're having is super pertinent to where we're at right now. I mean, we don't have the traditional means of, being the people of God. So we, we, we can't gather in the way that we have. We, uh, and you know, that's, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but that's going to be the case for a while. And so I think, you know, even, even the book that I mentioned, the domestic monastery, like we all for better, or for worse are, or for better or for worse are forced into a kind of monasticism. Like we are all, uh, we are all separate, or we are all separated from everything that was uh, structured our lives, most of us anyway. And so I do think that we need to zoom out for um, and look at what it means to be the people of God in the world and what it means to have this priestly task and to be, you know, in, in the world uh, in a, uh, in faithful ways. So, what do you what do you think, Steve? In terms of like, how do we how do we respond to all of this? Well, one thing I would say first is is what's interesting is it's obviously not the same. Like, I don't mean to say that it's the same thing, but one of the things that John was writing to was the destruction of the physical temple, um, and so. Uh, the book of John is is very late, um, probably a couple of decades after the, the their physical temple was destroyed. And so they were left feeling homeless when it comes to spiritual gatherings. Um, it was central to culture and community, and, and it defined part of what defined them at their – not just – as a religious community, but as a community as a whole, you know, what we're facing now, of course, is not the destruction of our physical churches, but in a sense, we're left to deal with the same sort of wrestling. Um, well, if we don't have our physical temple to meet at, what does that mean as far as the way we express our, our spirituality? What does it mean? And so we're kind of wrestling with those same types of, uh, of questions, uh, present, present day. Um, and so how do we, you know, respond? I, obviously, obviously when we're able, we meet again. For like, sure. We have, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. We, we believe deeply in the physical gathering. Um, I don't need to, you know, we've spoken to that in, in other ways um, in weeks past, but the way in which we realize the largeness of this, it brings more meaning, I think, to the actual gathering. That didn't make sense. No, I think that does make sense. I think that, I think that as we, as we see more things in our lives and, and, not even more everything in our lives as you know a potential place of of holiness or whatever like that we and I don't mean like uh uh like some kind of a moral thing I think as we are able to see the whole world as holy and all of our relationships that we're in and our tasks you know all the way from uh you know cutting grass or doing dishes or changing diapers or uh 
you know, or, everything or not cutting grass. <laughs> right. Yeah. As, <laughs> Oh yeah. Sorry, Steve. That's uh yeah. The American lawn is the bane of Steve, Steve's existence. And I'm sorry. Uh, all of it, all of it is, you know, has the potential of, uh, of, of great meaning in it and not even like just personal meaning, not like you find meaning in it every time you do it, but that is important. Um, that, that then when we are able to corporately gather, we're able to see it with new eyes as what it actually is. Like we are able to see each other as, uh, you know, as, image bearers of God, places where the spirit of God rests or whatever. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So for whatever reason, a lot of times when we hear certain maybe non-traditional thoughts or thoughts that, that maybe would expand beyond just a traditional reading, we have strange responses like, you know, so if the suggestion is made that John 14, the beginning is not talking about a physical mansion in the afterlife. Like, so you're saying there is no heaven or by talking about, you know, the, the sacred space being everything that this, that humanity was placed in this cosmic arboreal temple. It's like, uh, so you're saying going to church isn't important, you know, like, of course not. Like it, of course, none of those are in opposition, but it's just a way of experiencing the present reality in a more meaningful way. Like, so one of the pulling the, the future into the present. Yes. And so when we go into then implications, like one of the implications I think is really considering. the Holy spirit. Yeah. Like, I mean, and we don't need to get into the, the baggage or the reason why it isn't discussed a lot, maybe, or it's just over, not overlooked, but I don't even want to say afraid of, but just kind of, um, I don't know. It's not discussed enough. It's not it's not as central as it should be. Yeah, yes, because I don't care what denomination or, or anything like that, to read these types of, of texts, we have to at least think through the fact that we are the people of the spirit. Well, and it's a mystical text. I mean, let me let me read that one verse. beyond just you'll do greater things than I did. Um, uh, verse 20 says on that day, you'll know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you like mutual dwelling. Yeah. Like just like pause the podcast right now. And if you're driving for the next five minutes, just let your brain like warp into itself. Chelsea told me right before sleep last night, I still haven't checked to see if it's true uh, that babies don't see color for a while. Everything's black and white. Had no idea of that. And I'm like, you, you tell me that right before I go to sleep. Like this is one of those situations like uh, mutual dwelling that we're caught up into the life of God. You know, we're okay. Let's I'll, I'll, I'll be back in six months when I can, you know, speak to that. I have no idea all the implications of that we can, I can understand it theoretically, but, um, anyway, I, I think all of this is really important. I, Steve, I haven't even told you this, but we got a message. Uh, I got an email a couple of days ago that CMS schools where we meet, um, is they're suspending all of their community use of school program, which is what we're in all the way through the summer. So they're not going to be doing any community use of school this summer. And so, uh, what's nice about it is, is that, you know, I, I talked to several people in the church and ultimately I was leaning in this direction anyway. Like, 
you know, somebody filed an injunction this week or I don't know, some, some sort of lawsuit or something, uh, against governor Cooper's orders. And so churches are actually allowed to meet that it, it was ruled in their favor. They're allowed to meet these next two weeks until it's, uh, figured out in court. And so a lot of churches are jumping in and, you know, and doing it. I just, for us, until we feel really comfortable with children being together and playing together, uh, it, it doesn't make any sense for me, for us to meet because so a lot of churches are, you know, they're putting chairs six or eight feet apart. They're, uh, they're putting like clusters of chairs together for families. They're doing all this crazy, uh, distancing measures where people are staggered and when they're allowed to come in and then everybody's got masks on and, uh, you know, there's no children's ministry. So everybody's, uh, you know, everybody's together and, uh, but then they're, you know, once service is over, they stagger when people are leaving. And at some point you just go, why the heck are we doing this? You know, like what is the, what is the purpose of us being in a room together if we're not in a room together? And, uh, you know, I was talking to my dad about it because he's the interim pastor of a church up in Baltimore. So they're having all their conversations. And uh, uh, part of this that I didn't even think about was, we're getting a bunch of people to sing together, which is just like, you know, it's kind of disgusting to retroactively think about it, but like there's just billions of spit particulate kind of things in the air. It, you're, it's just not smart right now. And so the, the faithful thing in, in my eyes is to just, uh, you know, I, I'm open to things changing. I'm obviously, you know, if you listen to last week's podcast, I, I think it's, vital that we're together. I don't think that you can be, I don't think you can be the people of God without some kind of being together. Um, I don't think you can be the people of God uh, and be separated forever, like outside of if it was forced separation forever. I, I think, I don't think these virtual campuses and Zoom calls are going to suffice. I think that we we have to be together, but I think it's important that we protect each other, protect our families, protect uh, the most vulnerable, like be sort of like we were talking about with being on the front end of caring for the environment, caring for the earth. Well, the human species is part of that. And so like we need to be the, the people that are listening to scientists and listening to the, you know, reading the data and all of that. So all of that to say, expanding our view of, what our priestly task is expanding our view of what it means to be the people of God, expanding, you know, what it means to immerse ourselves in the world. I think all of that is extremely pertinent to what, what we, you know, what we've been talking about. So. Boy, well, we can talk later, but that's, I figured that was going to be the case. Yeah, I did too. I mean, and I, I think that, I think that, Churches and schools should be sort of in lockstep with each other. So that doesn't, you know, if the school systems are closing down, they want their kids to be meeting. You know, they want the after or the summer programming stuff in their schools. And, you know, right. if they think it's in the best interest of the children in our society, then I think that we probably need to follow suit at least in some way. I'm not a I'm not against doing some kind of like backyard things with smaller groups or whatever, but right. Anyway, well, but our decision is forced upon us. Right. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. So I mean, what are we going to do? Look, I think. Well, and again, we can. Well, I mean, this, we can talk tomorrow, or whatever. But we probably should then figure out a way to I don't even like better define us as a I don't know like okay so even though it's not a forever thing but if we are transitioning right now from a like a community in waiting to meet to a virtual community what does that mean then for the next 
May, June, July, August. For, uh, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, if we have a timeline, a definite timeline that, you know, we're not going to be meeting in person for the next June, July, August. Yeah, so three months. Yeah. Yeah, so we're just we're not just waiting. Like we're okay, virtual if we would just say we're a virtual community for four months. Yeah. Well, why don't you pray for us, I guess, as we're wrapping up. I hope I, I hope these are are beneficial to people. I know, you know, with them being in podcast conversation form as opposed to sermons, like I know we probably go in a lot of different directions as most conversations do and you know but but i hope that uh but i hope that they're concise enough that uh people are are able to 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 get things out of of the text that we're reading week to week yeah every i mean every medium i think changes the format that you do things you know you write differently than you speak and podcasts are different than than sermons and so the 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 aim of these is just to be a kind of open conversation that we come with a few things, but that we just kind of wrestle with the text and wrestle with ideas and kind of let them meander. Um, and so anyway, yeah, I do hope that it's helpful. And, um, as and this, maybe, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, and maybe, you know, if we know that we are going to be not meeting, maybe we, uh, do this and then also do something that's a little bit more of a structured sermon. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I want to do some more. Uh, I want to do some more guided, you know, meditations and stuff like we did with Ricky a few weeks ago. Um, just as you know, ways for us to kind of do some of the same things together corporately, um, even if we're separated. But uh, yeah, let me pray for us, Lord. Thank you so much um, for who you are. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you've put your Spirit in us and. Uh, that our whole lives are hidden with Christ in you, like we're caught up in your life. And um, I pray that you'd help us to understand what that means and what that uh, what what the implications for that are. Help us to live differently in light of that. Help us to see ourselves as image bearers. And um, yeah, I think it just changes everything. And so help us to allow it to change uh, our individual lives and to change our families and our neighborhoods and all of that. We love you so much, Lord. Um, there's so many people that are hurting right now. There's so many people that are isolated and lonely. Um, mental health is a sig significant concern. Uh, relationships are strained right now. Um, it's just really hard to do this as long as we've done it. And, um, so, Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort and bring peace to where uh, it needs to be, Lord, in the unique ways uh, that it needs to be brought to people, God. Just just be God in so many different ways to different people. Um, pray for our folks, all the kids that make up neighborhood, all of the uh, precious families, Lord, I, all the people, God. I just pray that you would um, help us to feel your goodness, help us to feel your presence, help us to experience uh, the lightness, the joy um, that's found in you, Lord. Let, let us um, not resist, but to lean into this time, God, and uh, we just experience all of it as teacher. We, we let all the hard stuff form us and mold us into who you're trying to make us be. So we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus name. Amen.